Hello. Welcome to the Myths and History of Greece and Rome. Chapter 91. Diocletian and Friends. OK, so the 3rd century is nearly over, and at last the crisis is definitely over. Diocletian has reformed just about everything, and has brought some of his best mates in to help him rule. So, a quick recap of who they are. Friend 1, Maximian, is the co-Augustus and is ruling over the West with his Caesar, Friend 2, Constantius Chlorus. Diocletian is master of the East, helped by Friend 3, Galerius. To make it even more friendly, Constantius has married Maximian's daughter and Galerius has married Diocletian's daughter. Unfortunately, Britain's still under the control of Carousius and the Sassanids are getting all warlike again, so not everything is rosy. As the 3rd century drew to a close... Diocletian decided to send the new Caesars to work. Constantius was given the task of retaking Britain and Galerius was ordered to form a huge army and take on the Sassanids. So, let's see how Friend 2 did first. Constantius's first task on becoming Caesar was to deal with the Roman usurper Carousius, who had declared himself emperor in Britannia and northern Gaul in 286. As soon as he had been made Caesar in late 293, Constantius began his preparations for the assault on Britain. He had already seen Maximian fail twice, and he knew what he needed. Planning, planning, and more planning. Carousius was a popular leader. The groundswell of public opinion was overwhelmingly positive. The people of Britain wouldn't just run back to Roman control. The Frankish pirates had been kept away by the troops under Carousius, and the people were happy. Yep, planning, planning, and more planning was what was required here. Constantius was a very ambitious man and fancied a bit of glory. He was not going to let it slip through his fingers because of a lack of planning. Or planning and more planning. Constantius Chlorus saw that two big mistakes had been made last time. One, Maximian hadn't crossed the friends of the Carousius, the Franks. Two, Maximian had tried to land in Britain at one single location, which was exactly where Carousius had expected him to land. Friend two was not going to make these mistakes. No, he was going to smash the Franks into the ground and then be sneaky about where he was invading the unruly foggy island. The new Caesar was a very clever man. He set a dam across the harbour of Boulogne, the Franks' major port, so their ships couldn't get in. The city was totally defenceless and fell immediately to the Romans. This had a much better effect than even Constantius had hoped. The leaders in Britain were scared the Romans were getting the upper hand and, very stupidly, killed Carousius. As we've said before, don't kill a good ruler just because things aren't perfect. That is stupid. A man called Electus was declared Augustus of Britain. Constantius realised he didn't really have enough ships to take Britain, so he spent the next two years neutralising the threat of the Franks. Only when he felt ready, and only when Maximian came to help his armies at the Rhine frontier, did he assemble two large invasion fleets with the intent of crossing the English Channel. Yep, Two fleets, not one. The first fleet was entrusted to Esclepiodotus, the Praetorian prefect, who sailed from the mouth of the river Seine, while the other, under the command of Constantius himself, was launched from his base at Boulogne. The first fleet landed on a chalky island that we now know as the Isle of Wight, and the second landed near Dover. Constantius was a happy man. Planning, planning and more planning would surely give him his glory. Asclepiodotus sailed from the Isle of Wight to a place we now call Southampton. He declared it must be victory or death, and then burned all of his ships so nobody could sail back to Gaul if it all went wrong. There was no escape for his armies. They must succeed. They marched north. 
Electus tried to move his forces to block the road to Londinium, which we now call London, but his planning was rubbish and the army was too weak. The forces were crushed by the Romans. Constantius arrived near Dover and also began to march on London. He met virtually no resistance. Carousius was dead and the Britons had begun to fear the Franks, so they welcomed his forces. The Franks were slaughtered by Constantius's army and Constantius was very content. He'd succeeded where his senior colleague had patently failed. The Britons proclaimed him as a conquering hero and Britain was Roman once more. Constantius Chlorus began to call himself the Restorer of Eternal Light. He had coins minted with this title, just to make sure everyone knew who the hero was. Meanwhile, Galerius had been told to smash the Sassanids, who had taken the age-old step of invading Armenia. Their new king, Narses, had clearly read from the script, If you want to annoy the Romans, interfere in Armenia. The second new Caesar, Friend Three, marched his large army out to meet the invaders, but either he hadn't taken on board Constantius Chlorus's methods, or he thought he could wing it. Clearly, there was not enough planning. The Romans fought hard. The Romans lost. It was a complete disaster. Galerius gloomily led the defeated army back to Antioch in disgrace. It's said that Diocletian was so angry that he punished Galerius by forcing him to run a mile in front of Diocletian's horse, still wearing his full armour. There's no direct record of this event, and it could simply be part of the mythology which surrounded Rome's greatest emperor since Marcus Aurelius. Whether or not he was publicly humiliated, Galerius learned his lesson. Diocletian went to Egypt to smash a revolt, and then returned to Syria to review Galerius's plans to have another go at the Sassanids. He had been highly annoyed about the rebellion in Egypt, so he declared that once he had retaken Alexandria, he would kill every citizen until the blood ran up to his horse's knees. It is said that at that very moment the horse stumbled and fell, so its knees were on the ground. The great and humble Diocletian took this as a sign and ordered the massacre should be stopped. This is another of those stories which may have an element of truth, but were surely circulated to enhance the mystique of the emperor. By now, Galerius's invasion force was ready. It was time to take on the Sassanids, having planned a lot more carefully, and it was time to win. In 298, he marched out at the head of a very big, scary army to take on the Persian forces. He yomped in, through Armenia of course, and met the Persian army head-on. This time, Friend Three was successful, and the army completely routed the Sassanid forces. And then, they did it again. After the second battle, the Sassanid Persians had no forces left, and Galerius even captured all of the royal family, excepting the king himself. At last the Romans had their revenge for the capture, 40 years before, of Valerian. Now the Romans had royal prisoners. This was payback. Diocletian, deciding it was time to use the propaganda fueled victory to his political advantage, took over and negotiated a peace, which the Romans were very happy with. The peace was not punitive on the Sassanids, though. Diocletian knew that an unfair agreement would only result in another war. And he didn't want another war. He did his job well. The peace would last 40 years. The century ended with Britain back in Roman hands and the Sassanids completely defeated. Oh yes, these were good times. Rome was as strong as ever and being ruled over by one of the best leaders the empire had ever seen. Diocletian is probably the most important emperor in the history of Rome after the divine Augustus himself. In many ways, he was just like Augustus. He saw a Roman world that wasn't working and knew how to make it work. 
he changed virtually everything and created a new world order. The people rejoiced. Good government, fair taxes, much, much less corruption, a good and reliable army, no invasions, four wise, fair, compassionate and just rulers. Yes, indeed, all was very good indeed. The year 300 saw the Roman world as powerful and dominant as it had been a hundred years before, maybe even as powerful as it had been 200 years before. Rome would stay powerful for nearly a hundred years more before the final decline began. It's unusual to ascribe world-changing heroism to a single man, but in this case it's justified. So, well done Diocletian, and well done, friends. Once all was peaceful, Diocletian improved the financial state of the empire. He ensured the gold and silver content in coins was at the right level. He couldn't stop inflation, though. Prices kept rising, although he tried to put a limit on the prices of goods. This, though, didn't work. Diocletian could defeat foreign enemies and stop rebellions, but he couldn't stop people charging whatever they thought they could get for goods and services. There was one thing, though, he could not secure. Succession. What was going to happen when Diocletian's friends died? He'd created a system which had two Augusti and two Caesars ruling over the empire. He'd made it clear what would happen once he and Maximian were gone, Constantius and Galerius would become the Augusti, and two new Caesars would be appointed. This was fine for Diocletian. He had no sons, and neither did Galerius. In the West, though, both Maximian and Constantius had sons, and both were talented young men. Maxentius and Constantine were part of Diocletian's eastern court. Both spent their time working for Diocletian and going on campaigns with him. Both Maxentius and Constantine were expecting to be made Caesars once Diocletian and Maximian had passed on. In 300 AD, though, Diocletian was only 56, and Constantius and Galerius were still not yet 50, so there didn't seem too much need to worry. Diocletian was a great emperor, because he changed things and made them better. But, and it's a very big but, all he really wanted was a return to the great days of the Roman Empire. And this, maybe, is where he made his one big mistake. He saw the Christian community growing larger and stronger, and he didn't like it. The emperor was a worshipper of the traditional Roman gods, and was not keen on this very different religion taking hold in his empire. Diocletian liked to consult the oracles, divining pagan priests who predicted the future and foretold how battles and other things would go. They did this by doing very strange things, like watching sacred chickens, watching lightning storms or cutting up livers. These activities would supposedly show them what the future held in store. Many of the pagan priests began to claim they couldn't do their jobs properly because there were too many Christians getting in the way and ruining their readings by making the sign of the cross. The emperor received a highly ominous warning from the oracle at the great temple of Apollo. It told him he would not be successful until the just were defeated. The Christians called themselves the saved, or the justified, and Diocletian took this to mean he had to stamp out this strange and silly religion once and for all. And so began the last great persecution of the Christians. Unlike all of his previous reforms, he failed miserably. Diocletian, even the great Diocletian, could not simply eradicate Christianity. Unlike all of his other efforts, he could not succeed where others had failed. Nero had persecuted Christians, so had Domitian and Marcus Aurelius. Decius had tried very hard to make them change their ways. Valerian had carried out a severe persecution before he was captured. Many Roman emperors had tried to force these people to worship traditional Roman gods, but all had failed. 
the soldier emperors of the late 3rd century had been much more tolerant. Gallienus, Aurelian and Probus had allowed people to worship as they wished, but Diocletian wanted the old Roman ways to return. In 303, Diocletian and friends, particularly Galerius who really hated the Christians, issued a proclamation that Christianity was to be wiped out. People were forced to stop worshipping the Christian god and start to venerate the Roman gods. This is called apostatizing. Many of those who refused were tortured or executed. On February the 23rd, 303, Diocletian ordered the newly built church at Nicomedia be burned to the ground. He demanded that its scriptures be torched and seized its precious stores for the treasury. The next day, Diocletian's first Edict Against the Christians was published. The edict ordered the destruction of Christian scriptures and places of veneration across the empire and stopped Christians from assembling for worship. Before the end of February, a fire destroyed part of Diocletian's imperial palace. Galerius convinced Diocletian that the culprits were Christians. An investigation was commissioned, but no responsible party was found. Executions followed anyway. One individual, Peter, was stripped and scourged. Salt and vinegar were poured into his wounds and he was slowly boiled over an open flame. Not a nice way to go. The executions continued and six important people, including the bishop Anthemius, were decapitated. A second palace fire occurred 16 days after the first. Galerius left the city, declaring Nicomedia to be unsafe. More edicts demanding execution of Christians were issued, but the persecution did not wipe out this annoying religion. In the West, Maximian, and especially Constantius, did not carry out most of the persecution orders, and Christians in the West were generally much safer. It was certainly not a great time to be a Christian in the East, though. In 304, Diocletian decided, eventually, that it was time to go to Rome. In his entire reign, he had not set foot in the Eternal City. He wanted to celebrate 20 years on the throne, and he thought that Rome would be the perfect place to hold this celebration. So he and Maximian travelled there to hold massive games and triumphs to show the people just how great they were. The people of Rome, though, didn't treat the great emperor as he thought they should. They didn't bow at his feet. They didn't call him their lord and master. The emperor decided that just as he had thought before, he didn't really like Rome at all, and left before the celebrations were over, just about having enough time to order the building of yet another complex of baths. The baths of Diocletian still stand there in Rome today. Parts of the complex have been converted into churches. On his way home, Diocletian became very ill, and in late 304 a rumour started that he was dead. In 305, though, a fully alive but not very well Diocletian showed the Roman world he was actually just about still going. He was, though, now 61 years old and clearly not in good health. The great emperor Diocletian had done many amazing things in his nearly 21-year reign, but... Being Diocletian, he had one more massive shock in store for the world. On May the 1st, 305, Diocletian called an assembly of the Tetrarchs, the generals, some traditional companion troops and representatives from distant legions. They met at the same hill, near Nicomedia, where Diocletian had been proclaimed emperor. In front of a statue of Jupiter, Diocletian addressed the crowd. With tears in his eyes, he told them of his weakness, his need for rest and his desire to resign. He declared he needed to pass the duty of running the empire onto someone stronger. Diocletian announced that he and Maximian were going to step down from being emperors and transfer power to their Caesars, 
who would become the new Augusti. Maximian wasn't happy about this, but Diocletian was his friend. He owed everything to Diocletian, and he did as he was told. And so, in 305, Diocletian and Maximian became the first emperors ever to abdicate, that is, to voluntarily give up power. Well, this really was something different. Both Maxentius and Constantine were there when the abdications took place. Legend has it that the crowds turned to face them in expectation of their new roles. Diocletian and Galerius, though, had decided that two other men would be the new Caesars. Why they made this obviously unpopular decision is not clear, but in a ceremony at Milan, Galerius and Constantius Chlorus became Augusti, and two other men named Maximine Dyer and Severus became Caesars. Both Constantine and Maxentius were very unhappy indeed. Very, very unhappy. Diocletian retired to his new palace near Spalato. This palace was huge, and now forms most of the city centre of the modern city of Split in Croatia. Maximian retired to palaces in Milan and Aquileia. The two friends were still close and met each other often in retirement. So, what about the new Caesars? Who exactly were they? Maximine Dyer was born into a peasant family to the half-sister of the Emperor Galerius, near their family lands around Felix from Juliana, a rural area then in Moesia, now eastern Serbia. Flavius Valerius Severus was also of humble birth, born in the Illyrian provinces around the middle of the 3rd century. He rose to become a senior officer in the Roman army and was an old friend of Galerius. Diocletian and Maximian were well respected and nobody of any importance really complained too much that Constantine and Maxentius had been ignored. Well, nobody except Constantine and Maxentius themselves. Maxentius went and sulked in a palace near Rome and Constantine went to join his father in Britain. Neither son would be quiet for long. Both of the new Caesars were chosen by Galerius with the help of Diocletian even though Constantius was supposed to be the new senior Augustus. The new Tetrarchy did not get off to a good start, mostly because Constantius and Galerius couldn't stand each other and didn't agree or cooperate on anything. Even though Severus was supposed to be the Western Caesar, he was a friend and supporter of the Eastern Augustus. This was one of the problems that sparked the beginning of the civil wars in the next few years. Constantine spent a year with Constantius in Britain, they campaigned against the Scottish tribes and succeeded in making most of the island of Britain fully Roman again. Constantius, though, was not well, and over the year he became increasingly sicker. It's thought he had a disease called leukaemia, which may have been partly responsible for his pale skin. On the 25th of July, 306, Constantius Chlorus died in York, the second Roman emperor to expire in that important British city. He was about 56 years old, and had been Caesar for 12 years and then Augustus for just 14 months. He was a great soldier and a very good emperor, and he produced a son who would come to be one of the most important men in the history of Europe. So it's 306. Diocletian is relaxing in his massive palace. Friend 1 has retired, friend 2 is dead, and friend 3 is the new senior Augustus. With the death of Constantius Chlorus, though, the Tetrarchy of Diocletian fell apart. But where one thing dies, another is born. The fall of the Tetrarchy would be followed by the rise of Constantine, a rise which would change the world forever. Next week, 
that rise will begin. If you're enjoying the podcast, I'd be really grateful for a good review on iTunes. Also, if you want to give me any feedback, then go to the website www.mythandhistory.podbean.com Email me, mythandhistory at gmail.com or friend me on Facebook, Paul Vincent Myth and History. If you go to the website, there you will find a donation button. Of course, this podcast will continue to remain free, but any donations would be very gratefully received. So, have a great couple of weeks, and I'll speak to you next time.